This is CliffCentral.com. Dramatic announcement. So anyone with a weak heart should leave now. Unreal. Revolution. Revolution. Uncensored. Revolution. Revolution. Unfiltered. Revolution. Unchanged. Revolution. Unadulterated. Revolution. Unbelievable. Cliffcentral.com. Revolution. You're listening to Professor David Block. I'm just so excited to be here on cliffcentral.com And today is a highly exciting topic entitled The Asteroid Just Missed Us And of course this has attracted attention Around the world is that uh, an asteroid just missed the Earth So stay tuned as it were Stay listening as we unfold a story which captured the imagination of the media The social media and of people around the world To contact me in studio it's zero eight six one triple five one eight nine. That's zero eight six one triple five one eight nine. Uh Facebook Cliff Central, WeChat ID Cliff Central. The most popular way of reaching the professor is surely the WeChat ID, right, Duncan, which is Cliff Central. Correct. Now today I invite questions, as many as you want. Uh, but it is just one of the most extraordinary little stories which unfolded. And the story really unfolded on October the 31st, which is literally just uh, days ago, and uh, certainly after my crossing last week. And uh, what essentially happened is that a mighty big chunk of rock, an asteroid, Actually just missed the Earth Now let's just get that in perspective You know, in astronomy uh, The moon is very close to the Earth 
in astronomical terms. You know, we deal with a universe which is billions of light years in extent. But when you start looking at the moon, and when you start looking at asteroids coming to the Earth closer than the moon, or at the lunar distance, or a little bit further, we regard that as a PHA, which is potentially hazardous asteroid or object. Those can cause unprecedented damage. Now, before I uh, go into the details of what could have happened, let's just think about the actual size of this uh, chunk of rock. And why is it there? Why was it there? Well, when our solar system was formed 4.5 billion years ago, there was a tremendous amount of rock out there. Uh, some of those rocks uh, developed ice mantles and became comets. And, of course, one of the most famous comets in all of history is Halley's Comet. But there are many other comets I can think about, such as Comet Bennett or Comet Ikea-Siki and so forth. So the universe, especially the inner solar system, is uh, filled, filled with chunks of rock. And fortunately, most of these pieces of rock or these chunks of rock uh, just don't come close to us. But uh, I want to show, I'll just hand Duncan a just little piece of paper of potentially hazardous objects. And I want him to just tell me how many pages, I'm going to give him a table. This table is filled with uh, different potentially hazardous asteroids. How many pages are there, Duncan? Just look at that. It feels, like, listeners. it feels like I'm holding a Bible here. It Professor. feels like it's, he's holding a Bible. Well, that's, I guess, right. Um, I mean, just look at the thin spacing of the lines between the different asteroids, Duncan. And how many pages are there? Uh, I'm probably looking at like 45 pages here. So, so the thing is that um, there are over 1,632 of these chunks that are potentially hazardous, um, potentially very hazardous. Now, not to create alarm, but the one which flew by on Halloween on October 31 uh, was not small. It flew by the Earth on October the 31st. Um, and its size was under one kilometer. Now, that is huge mm. in astronomical terms. In fact, um, uh, Tia asked me just before the, uh, we went on live, what would have happened if a six meter, 600 meter chunk of rock would hit the Earth? Well, this is what would happen. If you have an asteroid, which is about 600 meters big, hitting the earth, what would happen is the demise of all life forms on earth. And let me explain why. If you have a chunk of rock that big, it will not burn up in the earth's upper atmosphere, as do the little uh, meteor showers. It would continue straight down. And if it hit the sea, Duncan, there would be waves so high, tsunami, that uh, the size of those waves might be 10, 20, or 30 meters high. So that would obliterate, I mean, it would just wash over all our continents and, uh, you know, just mass drownings on a massive scale. And in fact, if an asteroid of that size hit the um, the land, dust would be thrown up 
uh, to such an extent that the sun might be invisible for a period of three to four years. Now, has this happened before? Yes. It happened 65 million years ago at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. And 65 million years ago, when this piece of rock, perhaps a little bit bigger than this chunk of rock, perhaps more or less the same size, we don't know. But when this rock hit the Yucatan Peninsula, half of it hit the land, half of it hit the sea in the peninsula. And Duncan, all dinosaurs were wiped out. I thought that was a rumor, but it's starting to make sense. Yeah, no, no, that's not rumor. That's actual fact. Is that um, if we just Google, for example, Yucatan Peninsula. So just for our listeners, that's Y-U-C-A-T-A-N, Yucatan Peninsula and dinosaurs or asteroid or something. You'll find masses of sites coming up, I believe, on, um, there we go, the Yucatan Peninsula. And um, it's in Mexico, of course. And I just see a beautiful image of it separating the Caribbean Sea from the Gulf of Mexico. And what happened, Duncan, is that the asteroid hit half on land and half on the sea. Mm. And it sent up tsunami, which were um, possibly 10, 20, 30 meters high. And it wiped out all living life forms, including the massive, massive dinosaurs. I mean, that is like reliving history, Duncan. That, it's, a, it's a great concept, Professor. So uh, because of this comet hitting, it yes. gave uh, human beings a chance to strive. So if that uh, comet had not struck Earth, yep. there wouldn't be human beings. We'd still have dinosaurs. Well, that's, I mean, that's a very interesting concept is that, you know, if the dinosaurs did not become extinct, uh, they'd still be around. And uh, I guess that's quite a frightful thought. I mean, to have one coming into my home, for example, <laughs> and being much larger than, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe part of the Carlton Center or something. It, I mean, you know, but the point is that this rock was about 60 stories high, that's 600 meters. So that's 60 stories high. Imagine a building 60 stories high heading for direct strike with the earth. That would create unprecedented damage. I mean, literally unprecedented damage. I would say once you go above a kilometer in diameter, mm. um, that marks the demise of life on the earth, at all, uh, of all forms of life, basically, on the earth. And so what happened on October 31 is that a little baby in space, very strange name, asteroid 2015TB145. Um, this one here, Duncan, I'm just showing Duncan the exact um, name, which if one Googles it, I'm sure it will come up with masses of stuff. Mm. Um, this, this asteroid came very close to the Earth. It missed us, but just by a fraction. If it was much closer, the Earth's gravitational force field would have locked it in, and that would not only be of the demise of Cliff Central, <laughs> but would also be the demise of um, Dory and everyone in the team, and of Tia as well. Sounds like it's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it's what I want. <laughs> but I think that sometimes when people overrun their time, it is what I want, Duncan. <laughs> but let's not go down that road. <laughs> so um, the asteroid um, 
came within um, this is incredible I mean really just in astronomical terms it's incredible it came within 486,000 k's mm, unimaginable I mean that is you know when you've got an object of that size of that mass of that dimension hurtling through space it's just 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 missing us on that sort of time scale it's doing a speed of about 10 k's an hour uh, 10 k's a second I mean this thing is moving and uh, if it hit the earth as it has happened before as I say the Cretaceous journey boundary um, you know if you look up on Google for example dinosaurs you know extinction asteroid and so on you'll find hosts of data now Duncan don't you find that it's quite striking in fact that we're still alive because I've handed you a whole wad of uh, potentially <laughs> hazardous objects, and each one of those could actually strike the Earth. Um, now, there are probabilities. As you can see, Duncan, I've handed you on that wad a set of probabilities. I give the probabilities in here. Mm. And you can see the probabilities are small, 1 in 10,000. Let me explain what that means. It means... Uh, if you've got 10,000 of these near-Earth objects, there's a chance of one hitting, one strike. And that's the one that hit uh, the dinosaurs. Well, that's right. And that's the point. One is enough. Uh, even though the probabilities are low, uh, one is enough. You know, in statistics, you can say, well... You know, the probability of these range from 10 to the minus 4, 1 in 10,000, to 10 to the minus 6, 1 in a million. Well, let's take that. One in a million. All right. So there's a one in a million chance. But the point is, there's not zero chance. Mm. There's one chance. Doesn't matter if it's out of 10,000 or doesn't matter if it's out of a million or doesn't matter if it's out of a zillion. The point is that statistically, there's the one. And the one did hit the Yucatan Peninsula 65 million years ago, and it wiped out all, basically all uh, living life forms. I think that's extraordinary. Uh, it is absolutely extraordinary, Professor. But I think one thing we're all missing here is maybe the beauty of a chance at a new beginning that a comet uh, brings when it mm. strikes, mm. Uh, because uh, when it struck uh, at the peninsula, it gave human beings a chance to strive and uh, yes. get rid of the dinosaurs. Yes. So yes. if it were to hit now, yes. I think it would bring about uh, new opportunities for new life, yes. maybe. I don't know what yes. you look at that, Professor. Well, I mean, I, I haven't really explored that possibility too deeply, but I'm very happy to entertain it now. I think it's a very, very beautiful question, Duncan. The idea of um, opportunity. An opportunity and new beginnings. But, um, you know, I always like to think of Earth now in a very, very advanced state, especially with regard to if you think of Einstein's theories of general relativity, special relativity, and so on, and in an exceedingly advanced state. Now, yes, we wouldn't want dinosaurs as our neighbors, but I mean, to think, if you just think, Duncan, of all the Michelangelo's disappearing and all the works by Rodin disappearing and just <laughs> everything. I mean, you know, to me, I stand, Duncan, in awe and in wonder of the human legacy. Mm. I, you know, I, and while one might want to look at it from a point of new beginnings, uh, to me, it is 
It's actually very interesting, of course, because in Scripture one does read that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Mm. So, you know, it all ties in very interestingly. So, but uh, it would be to me at the present time a huge, I mean, one can't believe if a piece of rock this size uh, came in. And I mean, you know, I had a television station phoning me and just saying, Prof, please just tell us the truth. What is actually happening? Now, how much of this is classified and how much of this is not classified? Because a lot of people believe that I know the truth, but that I'm not allowed to speak the truth. <laughs> With regard to these near earth objects, um, there's a number of people who've put on the social media that Professor Block actually knows what's <sighs> going to happen, but he's not allowed to say so because he's paid by NASA. Well, Duncan, <laughs> if you look at my car, I think you'll realize that I'm not paid by NASA. Are you sure your car doesn't turn into a spaceship at night? <laughs> well, maybe it does. I mean, maybe it's one of these, you know, one of these things that I just, you know, will press a secret red button mm. and the rock comes down and uh, I take Duncan up with me and his beloved remains behind. But the key point, seriously, so is how much of this is classified and how much is not classified. Now, it's a very interesting question and I need to address that head on. First of all, let me just debunk the myth that Professor David Block is not paid by NASA to uh, cover up or conceal. Now, the reason, um, which is very obvious to me, but which may not be obvious to you, is that there are myriads of telescopes around the globe. Myriads. They're not controlled by NASA at all. These are often privately owned observatories or observatories owned by certain governments or countries. No affiliation to NASA whatsoever. And they, they scour and survey the skies second by second, moment by moment by moment. And you think of the Keck uh, Observatory in Hawaii, K-E-C-K. You think of um, the observatories at Las Palmas. You think of the Mount Palomar Observatory. Um, these are not controlled by NASA. And, you know, if I go to a telescope in Australia, I will be in Australia for five weeks. I'm thrilled about that invitation. Duncan, I've been invited to work in Australia for five weeks, beginning in January, but we'll still have our crossings. But the point really is, we'll still have our crossings during the day, but the point really is, is that uh, when I walk up to a telescope there, uh, Duncan, at night, I for myself can see, you know, I mean, one can see, for example, photographically and other means, if there are these near-Earth asteroids coming our way. You can spot them. You can see them. Just as was done here on October the 10th, they spotted that this huge chunk of rock. Now, why, why October 10 only? Why wasn't it discovered a few years ago? Because these objects don't emit light. Hmm. So, in other words, they're pieces of rock, dark pieces of rock. So, it's not like, you know, for example, the sun shining on Venus or the sun shining on the Earth or the sun shining on the planet Mars and reflecting light and so on. These bodies are very, very dark and uh, they don't emit light or much light at all. In fact, I have an image before me, and you can call it up on your screens if you just Google Halloween Skies Dead Comet Jet Propulsion. That's that's a huge number of words I've just given you, but Halloween Skies Dead Comet Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It'll come up immediately 
uh, on your screen. Duncan's going to do that, and he's done it already. But now, Duncan, if you look at that image, uh, NASA says that looks very much like a skull. What are your feelings about that? Actually, before you said anything, it does really look like a skull. Okay. Now, that was the interesting thing is because why the television, you know, wanted me so urgently is they said, this is Halloween and it looks exactly <laughs> like a skull. And it does. It does. Mm. It's elongated in shape. Uh, in the dark areas, you can imagine the oh, eyes nice. and the nose. And in fact, if you look at it very carefully, as I'm doing now on the screen, you can almost see the mouth at the bottom. Mm. So it does look like a home and a lady, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it, um, it does. It looks like a skull. And this is what created the frenzy. But the point is, when was this photo taken, Duncan? If you look at the, uh, if you look at the uh, caption, I've got my glasses, but I believe it would be in, uh, around October 3031. Yeah, 30, 30th. So, you see, so, so what I'm saying is you don't know where these objects are. You don't know, rather, when, uh, where they are until they're very close by because they, th because they don't emit a lot of light. The image I'm looking at, which looks like a skull, is not a photographic image. It's an image secured uh, through the eyes of a radio telescope in Arecibo in Puerto Rico. It's a radar image. So in other words, it's really dark, dark, dark stuff. And uh, yet, it's an object like this which wiped out all living forms or most living forms, uh, you know, I mean, the dinosaurs, if you just think of their variety, Duncan, if you just think of their size, and then suddenly, it was just a, a chunk of rock around a kilometer high, uh, which caused their demise. Now, <clears throat> there are different types of these. I've got, I've got a couple of questions. Please here. ask me, Duncan. I'd be thrilled if you can. So, uh, where does a big comet like that get uh, its energy to direct itself towards Earth? But I know that once it starts heading towards Earth, Earth's gravity will pull it right. towards uh, right. the planet. But where right. does it get its initial? Okay. Okay. So it gets its initial velocities from the formation, from the time of the formation of the solar system itself. For example, I've got a couple of diagrams in front of me. And for example, when the solar system is first formed and you've got the Earth's orbit, say, in black over here, and I'm just describing this to Duncan, but I'll describe this to all our listeners, then you can see that there are rocks nearby the Earth's orbit and they're there. Mm. They were formed there when the solar system formed. So they were formed there about 4.5 billion years ago. When the Earth formed, these chunks of rock were just... Remember, the Earth is just a chunk of rock, if you like, but it's a big chunk of rock and, it's, and so on. But the point is, if you think of the moon, for example, what is the moon? It's a chunk of rock. I mean, very simplistically put, there's a lot more to it, but it's, it's rock. I mm. mean, it's rock. And um, if you look at the Earth... Uh, you know, what are we standing on? Well, a very rocky surface in general, right? Unless we're on the sea, and even under the sea is the seabed. Which, so in other words, there's a tremendous amount of soil, of rock, uh, of comets. I mean, these comets visit our skies very, very, very regularly. The problem with these near-Earth asteroids is that they come into the intersect the orbit of the Earth. Mm. One can see there's the Earth's orbit, 
And these asteroids' orbits actually come inside our orbit. And that's the mm. worrying thing because yeah. if the Earth is here when the, uh, the asteroid is moving like this, that would be a head-on collision, you see. How do you stop a one-kilometer-long rock mm. from colliding with the Earth? Well, I mean, that's just that's an awesome question, Duncan. Um, that's on everybody's minds, and that's what I've been asked today. I mean, really, the television station have almost been hounding me to try and get answers from me. And interesting how they do believe that I'm not allowed to speak about this. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, if you've got an asteroid around a kilometer in size, suppose you sent some projectiles to it and you broke it up in half. Does that help? Not at all. Because then you've got two pieces coming towards you and not one. <laughs> mm. So instead of just a local impact, uh, the probability is that that's going to be a huge global impact. If you take a projectile, Duncan, uh, an atomic projectile, a missile, and you break it up into 20 pieces, you think you're safe. Well, then you've got 20 chunks of big parts of a skyscraper. The impact would be lessened, though. The impact would be lessened, but but the number of strike impacts mm. is greater. Yeah. And so once you get... You, just imagine this. You've got 600 meters to play with. So let's suppose just the 10 pieces. So each is a 60th. Each is a 10th. So you've got, say, 60 uh, meters each. A 60-meter chunk of rock hitting the sea at high speed will create tsunami. I mean, that's a huge chunk of rock, uh, 60 meters. Um, you know, and so the point really is, is that up to the present time, and I'm not speaking with my lips locked by NASA, uh, you know, up to the present time, as a professor of astronomy, I would say we've got no real way of deflecting these into space. That would be the answer. I've got an idea. Mm, tell me. Say now not NASA builds uh, some kind of a machine yes. that would emit a certain force of gravity Yes, that would actually pull this comet away from mm -hmm. our orbit mm -hmm. and get it into the machine's mm -hmm. orbit. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean... That's futuristic and it's very, very interesting. But here's the, here's the difficulty, Duncan. And that's also just such an insightful thought. But here's the difficulty. Uh, you generally discover these asteroids, these near Earth asteroids, just before they close. Mm. You how close is close? Well, how close is close? I mean, this one is close. This one, this one was just at 486,000 kilometers. So, uh, close, I would say, is 384,000 kilometers, which is the distance of the Earth to the Moon. And closer than 384,000 k's is really close. Um, in fact, there are some asteroids which are locked inside the orbit of the Earth. Mm. So, I mean, those ones are really dangerous because they're actually locked. And they're families of these, such as the, the, those are called the inner Earth objects, the IEOs. So, you know, the point about Duncan's um, question is a very interesting one. Can we deflect them? Even if we've got the right machinery, you've got to get those projectiles up into space and detonate the incoming asteroid in time. If you've only got three days or four days warning, you haven't got the time to do this. Mm. And the interesting thing about these near-Earth asteroids, potentially hazardous asteroids, is that they can come from anywhere. 
There's no region of the sky which I can say is safe, quote, unquote. They might come from there. They might come from the east. They might come from the west. They might come from the north. They're they they, they just rocks in space. And we usually only detect them when they're pretty close. When it's too late. And then it, I believe, I certainly am of the opinion that it's too late then. You know, maybe technology will develop to the time when we have uh, permanent machines in space, uh, projectile machines, which can detonate these and deflect them out of their orbits. But the point is, if you've got, as I gave Duncan, he said he's got a Bible of them now, um, <laughs> the number of potentially hazardous asteroids. And Duncan, the spacing between those lines is just, what is it? Just a few millimeters. I mean, I mean, you've just got dozens and dozens and dozens of those objects. And each one that you're looking at, Duncan, has a potential probability of striking the Earth. I've just given you the top hit ones. And so what you can see is that from that Bible or list of asteroids is that you've got vast numbers of these which could strike the earth at any time. And it's a real, it's one of those real problems in astronomy. But I would not cause or create any cause for alarm because the frequency between direct hits is a long time. For example, the major hit, which I would say, you know, the major hit was 65 million years ago. And uh, so they definitely, they strike, they do occur, but their time frames are generally of the order of tens of millions of years between one strike to the other one. It has happened. I remember there was a couple in Japan sitting in their lounge when a little golf ball came right through their ceiling from outer space, a little meteorite, and went right through everything, uh, through there, created a hole in the roof and a hole in the floor, uh, and it actually struck right. I mean, you know, there's a chance that you and I could be just chilling outside and, you know, be struck by one of these. I mean, that is always the probability. But the point is, is that I wouldn't create alarm, but I do want to stress that, you know, being a professor also of cosmic dust, there are a tremendous number of these PHAs, potentially hazardous asteroids, or PHOs, potentially hazardous objects, and um, and UFOs. Well, you know, the UFO doesn't worry me at all because they seem to be friendly guys according mm-hmm. to the mythology. You know, they seem to be guys with big heads and big tummies and, you know, strangers and, you know, maybe they want to make, uh, you know, befriend us, Duncan. Maybe they want to join us on looking up with David Block and Duncan. <laughs> I just don't know. But chunks of rock coming in, as I say, The detection time is very limited. We just, you know, if you go to a telescope, when you see it, it's very close. And in all probability, it's too late to do anything. We certainly couldn't do anything uh, at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. Of course, we weren't around then. But the point is that, I mean, you can understand why the headlines are screaming like this. I'm just looking at some of the uh, press releases from NASA. Halloween skies to include dead comet flyby and, you know, the big pumpkin and, you know, mm. it's, it's, it's just, uh, the, I mean, there's a whole program, uh, and you're welcome to go to the NASA's site on JPL called the Near Earth Object Program. 
Um, and you'll see that there's vast numbers of these jolly interlopers. They're the near-Earth comets. They're the near-Earth asteroids. There's the Atiras. Uh, there's the Atens. There's the Apollos. There's the Amours family. And then there's the potentially hazardous asteroids. Um, these come so close, Duncan. But yet so far, yet when you've got something, as I say, you asked me what is close. When you've got something as close as the moon, that's pretty close. Yeah. And remember, the moon is locked into um, its orbit in terms of the Earth's gravitational force field. And once something comes very close to the Earth and uh, of that sort of magnitude, uh, especially if it hits water, uh, I think that would be devastation on an unprecedented scale. I think, uh, Professor, what would probably save us from all this uh, would be divine intervention. Well, that's right. And I think that's what gives me a sense of absolute calm today and an absolute sense of repose is that uh, you and I both are very much resonant with that thought that the Creator is in charge of his created cosmos and he will only permit that which he has allowed to be permitted. And so that is why I don't run around needing a psychiatrist and screaming with no clothes on. You know, there's, <laughs> there's this asteroid 2015, TB145, you know, coming down. And I mean, I'd be, I'd be suffering seriously, Duncan, if I did look at that Bible which I gave you. It's scary. In a sense. I mean, it's scary, right? And, you know, so in other words, unless one believes in uh, divine intervention and divine, you know, unless you believe the universe is designed, I believe you could go for your twist because of, you know, I believe that when you really look at the face of reality, at the numbers, the vast numbers of these potentially hazardous asteroids, um, they are just, you know, they're in all probability, uh, they're probably zillions of, you know, smaller ones, which we just haven't even detected. And the point is, the Earth is not stationary, Duncan. Do you remember this, that as I'm speaking to you, the Earth's going around in its orbit around the sun. So it's crossing these all the time. It's crossing the orbits of tiny pieces of rock all the time. And it's happened to miss them. And the chances are very, very small. I mean, that's true. But the point is, you know, I often give my students a thought exercise like this. You know, what is the probability of rolling 10, a, a, a dice with sixes 20 times? It's a small probability. It's a small problem. But the point is, as long as it's not zero, it means it will happen. What can happen? Professor, here's a scenario. Let's mm. uh, try to be uh, a bit more practical. Okay. Say now a comet, one, uh, one kilometer long, yep. hits, in, uh, hits in Canada overseas. Yep. How would that affect me here right now in the studio? Well, that's extremely interesting. So let's just think about that. If a piece of rock this size hit Canada, for example, depends where it hits. But if it hit, for example, Toronto, and half of it hit the sea and half of it hit the land, then this is what would happen. First of all, you'd have tsunami. Now, those tsunami would suddenly rise to heights, I would estimate, between 10 and 20 meters, if not higher. So two to three stories, um, 20 
10 to 20 to 30 meters. It depends on various parameters such as the orbital inclination, the impact parameters and so on. But the point is those tsunami would quickly uh, move across the oceans, reach us, and imagine having a wall coming towards you, Duncan, of water 20 to 30 meters high. Remember, I'm, I'm here in Rivonia. We're here. We, we're Absolutely. not at Durban or... Absolutely. So what I'm saying is, you know, if you've got a wall of water 30 meters high, I mean, yes, the waves from Durban are not reaching us. But once you've got that sort of, um, you know, <laughs> once you've got a wall uh, three stories high... It'll create unprecedented damage. Now, that's the poor first point. Then, let's suppose you're in a big continent like North America or somewhere in Australia then. How will that affect you? Well, if, if the water doesn't reach you, what happens is that if a chunk of rock hits the land, there's so much dust kicked up. I don't know if you remember, Duncan, a little while ago there was a volcano which erupted. Well, a while ago. And all flights were cancelled. Rem- Do you remember that? I couldn't go to Malaysia. I was scheduled to go to Malaysia. Okay, well, there you are. And that's just a tiny little volcano erupting, yeah. just sending off localized vast number of ash particles. What happened? The airlines cancelled all their flights. Why? Mm-hmm. Because visibility. They, because visibility, but also because they started traveling around the earth. Hmm. And so as they started traveling around, all those zones became, all those flight zones, Duncan, became very, very dangerous to traverse because there was a great risk of those particles entering the engines Hmm. and then perhaps stalling the aircraft. So they actually declared a dead zone, as you know, no fly zone. You say you were going to Malaysia. Now, that was cancelled. Why? Because one minute little volcano, and it's true, uh, erupted and it sent ash particles. And, you know, within a very short period of time, uh, you know, due to the forces in the Earth's uh, atmosphere, those start traveling and traversing. And it no longer remains a very, very small cloud, but, um, you know, it starts spreading. Now, if you imagine something far more grandeur than that, a huge chunk of rock nearly a kilometer across coming on land, I estimate, and it has been estimated, and some very interesting calculations, Duncan, have been done about this. Some theorists say that it's in, it'll kick up enough soil to obliterate the sun for four years. Whoa. Now, imagine us here in Gauteng, and suddenly the sun is obliterated, what would happen is the temperatures would absolutely dive. You've got no uh, heat source coming through. Um, the sun is essentially, it was estimated with, uh, with the dinosaurs. Now, the dinosaurs, I mean, many of them, of course, land-loving creatures, but the point is that when those dust clouds hit, and you're looking at a kilometer. I mean, how big is a volcano in extent at the top? I mean, it's minute. Yeah. Here we're looking at a kilometer worth and not just of ash spewing out, but this would be dust clouds of the thickest opacity, the greatest opacities, um, are starting to traverse the earth. The, the, I mean, you know, history just tells us that the impact was so great. Uh, at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary of such profound impact that all creatures on all lands found their demise. And that's what history tells us. So uh, 
Great analogy, Professor. Mm. Now I'm thinking, you remember the atom bomb that, that hit in Japan? Yes, absolutely. That's right. So that could have affected us in the same way, just in terms of the dust clouding up in yeah. the sky? Yep. Well, that's right. I mean, if you've got an atomic bomb exploding, for example, some very deadly radiation can traverse your vicinity. But the point about that is the atomic bomb is still in quote, unquote, localized. So it strikes Hiroshima. um, There's localized flows of some of the dangerous elements, but it's localized. Then, of course, it spreads some. But you cannot compare uh, a pinpoint strike um, and that's really how we would model it as a pinpoint strike in Hiroshima to a strike which is magnified to unprecedented proportions of around a kilometer. Mm. I mean, let's just think of something realistic, Duncan. What would be a kilometer from here? I mean, have we got the Santon Towers? How far are they from here? I think they, they, they off, they, they half a kilometer from here. So that's half a kilometer. All right. So we in studio here at Cliff Central in Ravonia, right at the end of the road near the highway. And you're looking at a size of a body twice the diameter of the distance, twice the distance from here to, um, San City. I mean, that's extraordinary. I mean, it, to my mind, I mean, it's just extraordinary to think that an object of that magnitude, you know, could strike the earth. And, uh, as I say, that's the reason why we've called this you. It just missed us is that, you know, that we are not looking um, listeners, it's something which is small. You know, to my mind, when I look at something two meters across, that's small. Three ki- three meters across, that is small. We can cope with that. But when you've got something nearly a kilometer in size, I think you've got to look at what history tells us. But again, I like what Duncan brought in earlier, and that is the fact that, you know, I'm totally committed to the fact that the earth is designed, um, the cosmos is designed, that our, you know, we are not living in a random accidental universe. But the point really is, as an astronomer and someone who's been tr- also trained in statistics, of course, in my earlier years, is that the moment there's a non-zero probability, Duncan, of something hitting, the point is it can hit. Mm. And I think that's the scary part. Absolutely. So what's the best thing we can do as uh, humanity, Professor? So the best thing to do as humanity is to be filled with awe and wonder in looking up. I ha- That's what I do. You know, I see the skull coming towards me, just flying relatively close by me. But to me, there's a sense of composure when I look at that image. To me, it's a sense of grandeur. To me, it's telling me, look, the solar system, when it formed 4.5 billion years ago, contained a lot of rocks, Duncan, contained a lot of these skulls, if you like. But there's no fear. To me, you know, I said to somebody this morning who was writing a seven-hour paper this today in accounting, you know, what was my advice to them? And I said to them, my advice to you is you are unique and irreplaceable, I have a dream, just like Martin Luther King had a dream, Junior had a dream, and that dream is to encourage everyone to look up. I don't live in fear. I do not live in fear. I live in awe. I live in wonder. I live in there with a sense of deep composure 
and deep perspective. I understand these things are happening. To me, it's just part of the wonder of living and also the wonder of being alive. I think that's the important mm. thing, Duncan, is that we are not dead. We are alive. And though the cosmos and especially the inner solar system be filled with these families of really potentially hazardous objects like the family Apollo or the family of Amor or the inner earth objects and so forth. And, you know, although you look at them and you say, wow, the point really is in the wow is that we are here. And to me, that's the wonderful thing of life is that, you know, there's so much which could have worked against us, Duncan, mm. over the past 14 billion years. There's so much which could have prevented Arena Broomberg from being here today, truly, on a cosmological scale. But the wondrous thing is, is that, you know, as you put the jigsaw puzzle together, everything has worked so that Rena could be here today. And I think that's the incredible thing about every listener is that you are hearing my voice and these PHAs, the potentially hazardous asteroids, have not wiped you out. And that, to me, is the excitement of astronomy. It's another note I want to end, is that astronomy is an exciting game. Someone once called me in and said, you know, aunt, haven't you done your work already? You've been in this professorial game for nearly, you know, 40 years. You know, is there anything more to do? And I say, of course. There's just so much more. There's the birth of stars. There's the death of stars. There's galaxies colliding. Stars are being born. Stars are dying. The universe is expanding. Uh, stars explode in the forms of supernovae. There's a tremendous amount of dynamic interaction in the universe and so when I see and read about these little asteroids which come very close to the earth I look up with excitement I say but that's another one for me to work out its orbit to work out its trajectory um, to tell people about the awesomeness as I'm doing today of these PHAs asteroids which came very close to wiping you out on October 31 but did not. This is Professor David Block signing out. Cliffcentral. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.